Just to explain to the Oxford Church, uh, it, is, it is great to be together with you this morning and uh, forgive us for invading your space uh, this Sunday morning, but the, uh, we've had this International Leaders Conference of Salt and Light here uh, over the last few days and we've had a great time. The theme of our conference, it's, not, it's gone down anyway, but the theme of our conference is Beyond uh, and uh, in sort of choosing that title, and I have a feeling it was Ron McLean that first suggested that on a conference call, but in choosing that title, it was with a desire that God would take us uh, in many, many different ways beyond, uh, beyond our current knowledge and understanding of God, beyond our current experience of Him, uh, beyond where we are in our churches, beyond where we already are in our nations, to take fresh ground uh, for him. And, and we've had a great time. And I mean, I, obviously I prepared what I wanted to say uh, before this last week. Actually, some of us have been away since Sunday evening because uh, we had a conference Monday to Wednesday and then another conference Thursday to Sunday. So some of us are pretty well conferenced out, I have to say. Uh, but we have had a great week in the presence of God, and, and we feel that God has pushed us forward. The Monday to Wednesday, we had about 110 people away for, um, for a conference looking at the apostolic. We do believe that God wants us to see a huge apostolic thrust forward, release forward, in the life of our family of churches. And we believe that that's going to take the release of many, many younger apostles as well. Uh, some of us have been at it for a few years now, and it's time for fresh waves and fresh waves and fresh waves, very much in the line of the, the prophetic word that Naomi brought to us uh, this morning. And so that conference where we had some of us uh, old-timers, but quite a lot of younger people with an embryonic gifting was to try and encourage this thrust outwards. We believe that all that God has done amongst us has been good, but he has many, many more things planned for us, and we have to prepare ourselves for those things, and we have to prepare new generations for those things. That was a great conference. Uh, we then came here and started this conference, this International Leaders Conference, on Thursday evening. And uh, our opening address just grabbed all of our attention. There is no question about it, as Nikki said. I don't know about you, but when I'm in a conference, I think, well, that was a good day, oh, that was a good day, oh, that was a good day. And you get sort of so lost, and you think, now, where did we start, and where have we come from, and what has God said in all of those sessions? That's why I'm recapping. I'm recapping for the International Leaders Conference, but I'm recapping a little bit for the Oxford Church so that they can catch up and understand what's actually happening this morning. So Nikki spoke to us uh, on Thursday evening. Uh, I'm not going to go into, into who Nikki is. That would take me, that would take me too long. But uh, Nikki challenged us profoundly about things that needed to change in us, like Peter had to be changed in Cornelius' house to have different paradigms because he was stuck in a paradigm of Jewish mission and God's purposes for the Jews, but God had a whole vision and purpose for non-Jews as well. And he had powerfully to change his own paradigms. And the challenge from Nikki was how God wants to change us internally. As she said to us on that session, you don't need a warm-up session, and she didn't give us a warm-up session. We were right in there being challenged with the purposes of God and being challenged about our own need to change from whatever comfortable ruts we are in uh, to, to see things differently and to be prepared to embrace new things. Over the last couple of days, we've had challenges in the area of mission how we're thinking missionally, whether God wants to take us further missionally, both in terms of what's happening on our doorsteps in our various cities from whatever nation that we're in and what's happening in other nations. Last night we had a great time with Pete Gregg. The one thing that strikes me about Pete is he's definitely not religious. 
but he, he is substantial. He, it is all about God and the presence of God and getting into the presence of God. And, and he challenged us um, about going beyond generationally and God wanting fresh generations to take God seriously, to call God down, and to be 100% sold out for him. And one of the worst things about uh, bringing up the rear, uh, in other words, trying to finish off the conference, is you have a whole tick list of things that you might have said and they have been being ticked off all the way through the days of the conference, and you think, well, I have one or two things I would just like to say at the end. Uh, seriously, I do feel that there's still more that God wants to say, and uh, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles or on your tablets or on your phones to John chapter 21, please. John chapter 21. For those of you who are here for the first time this morning, especially the church in Oxford, we have people here from many nations, Belgium, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Canada, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, India, Kenya, Libya, Norway, Poland, Romania, Rwanda, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, Uganda, UK, Ukraine, USA, Zimbabwe, just to give you some feel of nations represented here. We are ever so grateful for this sense of family across the nations and the joinings of God, which are real. Uh, they are profound. Uh, and this sense of connection just makes me feel very, very enriched. And uh, I'm just very humbled to be, to be part of this. I think it's, a, it's a, a wonderful family, and I'm very, very grateful for all those joinings of God. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? I want you to notice how that question is framed. It's framed slightly negatively. It's not saying, have you any fish? It's, haven't you any fish? I would have expected you to have had some fish by now if you're fishing all night. Haven't you any fish? Please note that. That's very important. No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. I've always wondered what these guys thought especially since they didn't, hadn't really connected that it was Jesus. Who is this smart Alec? Who's, you know, and yet they don't object, not for a moment, according to the story. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed... They saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, 
the net was not torn, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he turned to him and said, follow me. I've entitled what I want to say, Miraculous Catches. Because I do believe that God wants us to think beyond where we are in terms of the impact that he wants us to make in this world, in our nations, wherever we're represented, which is about catching fish, saving the lost, and bringing people to Christ. So that's where I'm going this morning. Before I just embark on that, I want to say one or two things. Uh, first of all, Lorraine and I happen to be uh, in a church in a certain nation, which shall remain nameless, and we were with a Baptist church that was charismatic, and we were talking to the pastor about the life of his church, and he told us about the time when he was called to lead that church. And one of the things that the interviewing committee had said to him three or four years beforehand is, so what is your view on charismatic life? Are you charismatic? Because they wanted to know, of course, what sort of leader they were getting and they were in for. And so quite proudly, thinking it was a good and clever answer, this man said, oh, well, I'm charismatic, but not dangerous. <laughs> and he told us this story. Uh, and, you know, he thought it would impress us. I just want to say something. that Ever since he said that, and this was a few months ago now, this is four months ago, Ever since he said this, there's been something sticking in my craw. As though it's permissible to be charismatic but not dangerous. As though God wants us to be charismatic but not dangerous. I would have thought the very reason for being charismatic is that we want to be dangerous. 
We want to receive from God words of knowledge, words of prophecy and insight, words of revelation, things that are revealed to us from heaven that will equip us and make us dangerous in this world and and enable us to pierce through all sorts of situations by the life and power of God. We don't want to be charismatic and not dangerous. However, I think there's a temptation in a number of our situations to try and water down in some way what we really stand for and the life and the dramatic power of the Holy Spirit, which is our power, which is our joy, and which is our glory. For those of us who were at the conference last night, Pete Gregg, I hope you, I hope you heard him say, I thought it was a powerful phrase, he said, Pentecost is not our history, it is our destiny. The life of the Holy Spirit is not our history, it's our destiny. That's where we're going. Everything that we want is wrapped up in this life of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to encourage us all not to be charismatic but not dangerous, but to be charismatic and as dangerous as we can be. Amen? Okay, that's the first part of my... I just, I just I want to get, get that off my chest. So we're not watering down. We're not being apologetic for the life of God and for the life of the Holy Spirit amongst us. We're going to be 100% card-carrying charismatics who move in the power of the Holy Spirit, who want to see the power of the Holy Spirit released whenever we get together, who want to see the power of the Holy Spirit released out on the streets wherever we go amongst our friends. That's what we want to see, and we want to be as dangerous as we can for the kingdom of God. Amen? Okay, good. Thank you. Now, the second thing I want to say, just by way of introduction, is, is this. Uh, it is simply about the danger of deception. And that is, for us who have been at this conference, the danger that having been here and had a great time, a great time in which God has provoked us and challenged us, we go away and think, whoa, wasn't that good? And carrying on as usual. And James chapter 1 says that is a great deception. It's like a man who looks in a mirror, goes away, and forgets what he looks like. He's, uh, he's someone who listens to the word but doesn't do it. And if we have sat under some very profound ministry through these last few days as we have, that now leaves us with a responsibility. Uh, we can't just walk away and do nothing. We can't just walk away and say, wasn't that great? Because uh, that would be a huge deception. And one of the challenges for us now is to, is to embrace the joy and blessing of follow-through. If that's what God was saying to us, what does that mean we have to go away and do? And I want to encourage those of you who have been here to be as accountable as you can for what you have heard. Please go away and talk about what you've heard with your friends, uh, with your friends who've been here. And if some of your friends haven't been here, but they're in leadership of your local churches, everything is downloadable. All of our conference addresses are downloadable, free of charge, free of charge, Uh, so you can access them. Um, And... And play them with your, you know, watch them and listen to them with your leaders, please, if you feel you've heard something from God, so that we don't deceive ourselves that we're further on than we are when we've done nothing with what we've heard. Okay, so let's try and, uh, you know, and free ourselves from this danger of deception and embrace the joy and blessing of follow-through, of putting into practice whatever we feel we're hearing from God. Now, the words that we have heard, we have to know they're of God. Not everything that has been said is God speaking into every single situation represented here. And that's part of the discernment of leadership, saying, okay, so out of all of this, and we've had a good load of stuff, out of all of this, what is God saying to us that we need to follow through on and being very, very clear about that? And the third thing I simply want to say is this. One of the words that is used of us as churches and Christians uh, quite a lot now, I hope you've heard it, is the importance of being glocal disciples. Glocal. That's a combination of two words which mean global and local. 
And if you haven't heard that word, it is something that quite a lot of Christians are talking about. It's not something I've just invented for sure. I'm not that creative, um, you know. But, uh, but it sums up what God wants us to be in this world. I'm convinced of it. He doesn't want us to be just stuck in our own little ponds without understanding what he's doing in his world. And indeed, there's great danger in that. Because if at the moment you happen to be in a, a really, really tough desert place, you might think that God isn't doing much in his world. But one of the great things about looking across nations is you see that there are whole waves of God's power and life being released, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people coming to Christ every day. And that should encourage us that if they can come to Christ there, they can come to Christ here, right where we are. And that builds our, that builds our faith up. I want us to be global disciples, people who have a global vision and understand God's heart for nations, which also means that there's a responsibility to pray and think uh, and also ask God what our responsibility is towards God's people in other nations. And I hope and pray that you as leaders um, lead your churches in prayer for nations Prayer for persecuted Christians. There are many of them. We ought to stand with them. In some nations, Christians experience shocking persecution. North Korea is a top example of that. Uh, But there are many others. And that we keep ourselves informed so that we're trying to help our people understand what God's people and God's family are going through. But bigger than that is is to help us understand how we play our part in making some sort of global impact, which is what God wants us to do. But right here where we are, there are also nations on our doorstep. Is there something that God is uh, causing us to do here? Now, that brings, that's just the hors d'oeuvre, okay? Two or three points for starters. Um, but let me come back to John chapter 21. In this story... Jesus wants to teach his disciples something about life without him and life with him. He wants to teach them about how he helps a life be fruitful and how a life can't be fruitful apart from him and his presence and his direction. This is ever so simple and even deeper than that, He wants to point Peter in particular to the priorities that he is calling him to. And by by doing this enormous miracle in Peter's backyard, the Sea of Galilee, right there where Peter lives, he's trying to get his attention. So, Miraculous catches. Miraculous catches, and I'm trying to apply this word, I don't apologize for it, I'm trying to apply this word on two levels. And one will be to individuals and another will be to the vision that I believe God wants us to carry for much more fruitfulness and effectiveness in this world. We are here to see lost people touched with the love and life of Jesus and to find their meaning and purpose in Christ. The very quick story of the whole of the Bible is that when God made man and woman, they were made for fellowship with him and for destiny and purpose. The destiny and purpose was that they should be fruitful, multiply, multiply, fill the earth, be stewards, rule over it, and that they should enjoy the peace and blessing of God in fruitful lives. The relationship with God is broken through man and woman's sin, disobedience and pride, whatever it is, and immediately they lose that sense of purpose. They are lost. They don't know what they're here for. 
They don't know why they're living on God's earth. One of the things that we need to understand is that we you know, are born again not just to be saved and go to heaven, but we are born again and found by the love of God in order to come into our creation purpose, understand what we're here for, and live this life with a sense of purpose and destiny uh, that we know our God and we're living with Him in His presence. And that's why Jesus often refers to people who are lost. And I love some of those stories about people who are lost. I say I love them. I love them because they talk of God's purpose. Jesus said, well, I came to seek and save the lost. That's, that's my mission statement in life. That's what I came for. What are you here for? I came to seek and save that which is lost. And then you have, then you have three parables in Luke chapter 15, three stories where Jesus talks about the lost. And there's the lost sheep. For animal lovers, that's a very tender story. Ah, poor little lost sheep. You know, if the sheep is lost, you know, oh, the shepherd goes after the lost sheep, leaves the other 99, goes after the lost one. I don't really think that's what Jesus was talking about. Uh, sorry to the animal lovers, especially Brits. Uh, I don't think it's, Jesus is talking about this. This is a loss of, you know, of the lamb, a loss of income, a loss of life, a loss of purpose. This business is suffering, everything's suffering because this lamb is lost and he's going after it. He leaves the 99 to go after it. Now, he is giving an image of God. God's, you might think that one sheep doesn't matter, but one sheep does matter. And every single person matters to God. And so don't think it doesn't matter, it does matter. So this is a first introductory story in Luke chapter 15, just to try and highlight that even for a lost sheep, a shepherd goes out in search. The second story is even more profound. It's the story of a woman looking for a lost coin. God is like a woman looking for a lost coin. Now, some of you will have heard me talk about this because I've been talking about this quite a lot just in the last few years, but there is a difference between the way men and women look for things. So, if something goes missing in our house, I have a tendency to say, don't worry, dear, it'll turn up. That's like a red rag to a bull. Uh, or, anyway, no, we better not go there. A, a red rag, anyway, to Lorraine, who says... No, he won't just say, I am going to find it. And she can't be at peace until she's found it. You know, and I have this way of looking for things. I open a cupboard, now; it's not there. I open a drawer, now; it's not there. Are there any other men just a little bit like me? The worst thing is when she opens the same drawer and the same cupboard and it's right there. And I say, I looked there. That's not fair. And I can have the cupboard open and still not see that very thing that's in the front of the cupboard. Any men? You understand? Okay. Now, the way a woman looks something like for something is very, very different. They are going to find it, and they can't rest until they do find it. We had this very powerful thing happen one Christmas time. We came to the day after Christmas, Boxing Day, and Lorraine realizes that she has lost a ring off her finger. It wasn't her wedding ring, it was another ring, it was a signet ring. Not huge value, but quite a bit of emotional, sentimental value. And she comes to me and she says, I've lost my ring. I say, don't worry, dear, it'll turn up. <laughs> Worst thing I can say... Uh, that's no help at all. I'm never any help when, I, you know, when help is needed in these situations. Don't worry, it'll turn up. Uh, you know, where do you think you last had it? She said, I don't know, I've lost it. If I knew where I last had it, I wouldn't have lost it. <laughs> There's a certain logic there, isn't there, anyway? But, you know, so I'm trying to help, but I'm no help. So I open one or two drawers. The ring's not there. I, open, I say, don't worry, it'll turn up. 
You know, we haven't been anywhere in the last couple of days. We've all been here. I mean, we had 16 members of our family for Christmas. We'd all been there. We'd all been home. We'd all been opening Christmas presents and eating turkey together and all the rest of it. And she said, no, I'm, I'm going to find it. She then becomes like a heat-seeking missile <laughs> to find this lost ring. And she goes through every drawer, every cupboard, and I'm sort of wandering around limply behind her. <laughs> no help at all. You know. I, I can't quite remember the conversation between us, but I was probably told to go away since I was no help. But anyway, I, I'm wandering around trying to help, trying to make encouraging noises and think, I wish she'd, st- <laughs> I wish she'd stop fussing. You know, it's going to turn up. I know it's going to turn up. We'll find it. It's no problem. We haven't been anywhere else. She goes high and low through the house, every single bedroom, because we have people in every bed. Every single bed. She made all the beds, you know. Every single bedroom, the bathrooms, the lounge, the dining room, uh, you know, every single place, every cupboard, no ring. Don't worry, dear. We'll find it. It's the best that I can do. She said, I'm going to find it. I want you to understand God's like a woman looking for something. (laughs) He is not so casual about lost people as you men and me. Okay, he's more passionate than that. So then the, the real big challenge comes. She says, well, there are five bags of rubbish trash outside on the back patio with all the paper from the Christmas presents, turkey carcass, everything. Can we please go through these? I say, look, do we really have to do this? It's probably inside somewhere. You don't need to fuss like this. No, no, no. We need to go through this. So five bags of trash all come out on our back uh, backyard you know, and we're there in, you know, with our fingers in turkey carcass and all the, all the rest of it. Of course, it's not there at all. So with a degree of smugness, you know, I <laughs> pile it all back in the bags and say, I knew it wouldn't be there. <laughs> I had no clue where it would be, but we didn't need this, you know, this energy applied to it. it her head still go around. She's not listening to me. You know, her head's still going, going round. She's, uh, you know, she, where can it be? I've, I've, every drawer I've been in, every room, every cabinet, you know, where can it be? Bang. What was she doing the day before Christmas? She cleaned our bathrooms. We had two bathrooms at the time. She cleaned both rooms and the downstairs loo, put on her rubber gloves to, you know, to handle it. Eventually, she goes to the rubber gloves. There at the bottom of one of the fingers is the ring. She found it. God's like a woman looking for something. We men need to shake up our ideas about lost people that God loves. Perhaps some women do as well. I don't know, but... Because God loves lot, And then you get this final moving story. Now we're into real relational stuff. Because this is a family that has been torn apart by a son's foolish, selfish behavior. And has broken the heart of his dad and his mum. As he's gone off to live a reckless life and waste his life. This is powerful stuff. And all the time, all the time, the father is thinking about his lost son. Please forget the name, the prodigal son. He's lost. In Middle Eastern society... He had brought shame on his whole family. 
The family were covered with shame because of the behavior of the son. If you don't understand that, you don't understand this story. This is not just about a son going off and doing stuff he shouldn't do. This is about a deep sense of shame that covers the family because the son has not lived the life that all the community, all the friends, relations, neighbors, cousins, everybody else would have thought. And the family and mother are not only grieving over a lost son, but deeply ashamed. And there is only one thing that could happen in Middle Eastern society. It is that the son comes back and kneels at his father's feet and asks forgiveness for bringing shame on his father's family. And only by a release of that shame by the father can the son be released and can the whole family be delivered from this deep and profound sense of shame. Which is why this story is so unusual. When the father once again is out in the fields hoping and praying and looking for his son to come home and sees a shape on the horizon in the distance and hopes and prays for dear love that that's his son. He hitches up his cloak and he runs over the fields and he runs to the horizon to throw... If you understand what he's now doing, he is operating as no Middle Eastern father would ever operate because you wait for your son to come home. But he runs. He runs to him and he throws his arms around him and he's not worried about Middle Eastern protocol. He's not worried about the shame. He throws his arms around him because his son that was lost is back home. And he throws a party and, and, of course, there's all the fuss with the older son and all the rest of it. Let's not go there. But And Jesus says, that's my dad. He loves the lost. He said, I'm here to seek and save the lost. This parable, this story about Peter and the fish is not just about fish. It's about how Jesus feels about lost people and how he wants Peter to feel about lost people. I'm tangling up several strands, but I want you to understand what's going on here. Basically, Peter's in a bit of a mess. He doesn't know what to think. He doesn't know what to think about Jesus. He doesn't know what to think about what's going on. and He, he doesn't know where his life's going. And he's invested three years of his life. And was it a mistake? And he says, well, I'm going fishing. Anybody up for fishing? So this is him going back to his old life. This is him going back to something he knows. This is him sort of saying, I've, I've tried everything, but this hasn't worked. I don't know where it's all going. I don't know where my life's going. I'm going fishing. Anybody up for fishing? Let's go fishing. <laughs> they toil all night, all night, all night. Have we got any fishermen here? Have we got any fishermen here? One or two or three. Okay. We've got a handful. I go fishing occasionally. I've been fishing with my son, Benjamin. Um, there, there is something quite tantalizing about fishing, but you've got to catch some. I mean, the excitement of catching something is, I mean, that, that does you a power of good, but, but going out and catching nothing... I've had some fishing trips with Barney like that. <laughs> Go out in his boat. Well, we have a good chat for hours on the boat, but we don't quite get what we've gone for. And it is thoroughly depressing. So they toiled all night, they worked hard all night, and they catch not a single fish. 
because God had another plan. God's in charge of this fishing trip. God has another plan. And so he comes, Jesus stands on the shore, and he says, How are you doing? <laughs> haven't you, got, you haven't got any fish? This particular fishing trip was not in the will of God. It was not in the purposes of God. He didn't want Peter going back. He didn't want Peter going back. He didn't want Peter... Anyway. And so he says, you haven't got any fish? And they all say, no. They're as depressed as they come. There is nothing worse than going fishing and catching nothing. Is there John Isaacs? <laughs> I mean, these, these lonely people who just like going and sitting on the fishing boat are odd. It's all about catching something, isn't it? It's all about catching something. They, catch, they caught no. Haven't you got any fish? No. Well, look, just throw your net on the other side. See, all of this is evoking conversations that Jesus and Peter have had before. Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He's reappearing to Peter in order to recommission him ultimately to fishing for men. Not fishing for fish. So he makes the fishing for fish particularly sterile. And then says, okay, put your nets the other side. And in it comes 153 in order to show him that he's in charge. It's a miraculous catch. But Jesus is up to something far deeper than just saying, I want to bless your business, Peter. Can you hear me? He doesn't just want to bless his, fish, his fishing business. He wants to say, Peter, it's in obedience to me that you're going to be blessed. In obedience to me that you're going to be fruitful. In doing my will, you're going to be fruitful. Now, let me just say something about miraculous catches, because I'm after something this morning. Miraculous catches come to those who are fishing. Right, so he was in the right place. Peter was in the right place. He was fishing. You're not going to have a miraculous catch if you're not fishing. We are not going to see lost people come to Christ if we are not focused towards the lost. And we've got to go beyond happy church life and be focused on the lost if we're going to have any chance whatsoever of having miraculous catches of fish and seeing people come to Christ. And one of our chief problems is we have not been focused on the lost enough in our church. You may say, well, we've done our Alpha courses. Of course we've done our Alpha courses. I'm not diminishing what we have done. But our overwhelming passion is not to see lost people to come to Jesus. It's an added extra. It's a bolt-on. It's not our overwhelming passion. And I believe God wants to change our focus as a family of churches so that we understand how God is like a woman looking for the lost. So it's not an added extra. It's not something we do as a bit of an aside or it's not something we do one day a week. It's something we do seven days a week. We are focused towards lost people because we want lost people to know Christ, to come to Christ, to be found by Christ. That has to be our burning passion. Many of you will know the story of D.L. Moody, a great revivalist preacher. But you can't be preaching at meetings every day. And he didn't preach at meetings every day. But if he didn't, wasn't preaching at a meeting, he would go off into the streets, even if it was 10 o'clock at night, in order to have witnessed to one person about the Jesus that he loved and knew. Because he had this burning passion. He couldn't be anywhere else. And uh, so miraculous catch. If we want, so if we want to see people come to Christ and lost people saved, we have to be out fishing. Which makes us ask the question, what are we doing? What are we doing a lot of the time? What are we doing 90% of our time? Even if occasionally we go out fishing, what are we doing 90% of our time? We need to understand that Jesus is Lord of this fishing adventure. He is the Lord of the harvest. He wants to tell us where to fish and how to fish. We have lots of ideas 
about where to go and how to do it, but he wants to speak to us. And that's been one of the things that God has been sort of trying to drum into us this week. There may be better ways of doing it. Miraculous catches come to those who are prepared to try new ways. Don't throw your nets that side. Throw your nets the other side. In other words, miraculous catches come to people who are prepared to experiment. We've got all sorts of different answers, none of which are wrong. You know, Alpha, Journeys, Cafes, Missional Communities. The answer, as was being said to us yesterday and the day before, is, is not in systems, but in Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is the way that we need to touch God's people, those who are still lost. And I have a feeling that God wants us to go beyond in our vision and understanding of what it means to be fruitful for him. It is not about having large churches. It's about having, seeing lots and lots of lost people come to Jesus. It's about miraculous catches. Jesus is trying to show Peter something. I don't just want you to do your ordinary fishing. I want you to do some miraculous fishing. So then comes a conversation where Jesus is trying to get hold of Peter a little bit more deeply. This is all one story. It's not two stories. If your Bible is anything like mine, it's got a heading in the middle of this story. You have the miraculous catch of fish. Jesus recommissions Peter or something. I have a heading there. But it, this is all one story. <laughs> Jesus has tried to get Peter's attention in order now to have a conversation. Peter has had an up-and-down time following Jesus. It's not been easy. He's made huge mistakes. He was the only disciple who was told to get behind me, Satan. He was a big mouth and a braggart. He had this great idea about, you know, building a booth on the top of a mountain because he'd seen the transfiguration, somehow holding on to the presence of God. Jesus said, no, I don't think we'll do that. Thank you very much. And then in the trial of Jesus, during the trial of Jesus, he denies Jesus three times. Which is why in this story, Jesus recommissions him three times. Because Jesus wants to lift the shame that Peter feels about his failure by saying to him, No, Peter! <laughs> You can still work for me. You can still do stuff for me. Now, I don't know where we are or where we've come from, all of us. I obviously know quite a few. But, but one of the things we often feel is shame over our failure. Shame even over the failure and the fruitlessness of our leadership. We've been there with great excitement, you know, to... And done all sorts of evangelistic stuff, maybe, but we've not really seen the fruit. So what do we do? We settle back and we manage the little church that we've got. And Jesus wants to wake Peter up that there's a miraculous catch out there, but this is going to have to become your passion, Peter. And it's rooted in passion for me. So three times he says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than this stuff? Now, can I be quite clear with you? Jesus is not saying to Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? It can be mistranslated, this verse. He's saying to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than this stuff, I, this boat, this fishing tackle? Which is 
first in your affections? Which is first in your priorities? What are you really here for? Now, fishing was his job. And I'm going to be quite unashamed in what I'm about to say because I believe that God's asked me to underline something this morning. Fishing was his job. But it was not to be his focus. Jesus wanted to focus him somewhere else. He said, do you love me? Am I your first love or is fishing your first love? Now let me say where we are at the moment in the Christian world. Being a leader and being a pastor and serving Christ and being sold out for him to see people come to Jesus is not people's number one passion or priority. And in a good many places... Once people have got earning a certain amount of comfortable lifestyle, getting them out of that, say, you know, there's a call here, you know, to be fruitful for God's people. Will you come and serve Jesus? The answer is, well, no, thank you very much. Why would I do that? I'm going to halve my salary. Life's going to be much more difficult for my family, the school fees to pay, there's this, that, and the other. Now, this isn't just in the West. I was talking with Brother Titus the other day, um, actually a week last Friday. We spent the evening together, Titus and Edward and myself, they're from Uganda. And we're saying, how is the leadership issue with you? And they said, well, middle classes are getting wealthier in our nation. Those wealthy people no longer want to give themselves to serving the Lord. They're not going to pay the price. They want to have their business. They want to have their comfort. They want the first focus is not on... And what, what Peter's doing is saying, do you love me more than all this clutter? Am I your first passion? Am I your first love? Will you give yourself to me? <laughs> if you give yourself to me, you could have a miraculous catch. Now, Naomi said something this morning when she prophesied. I hope you noted it. She said something about not wasting our lives. Not wasting our lives. And I want to say to you that I think in our generation, there is a temptation. I'm not accusing anybody. You've got to do what God is saying to you and what your passion for him will lead you to. I'm not trying to lay a blanket thing on everybody. But in our generation, there is a comfort that is coming through that is stopping people passionately committing themselves to a call of Jesus to seek the lost and to find the people outside of God's kingdom and bring them inside the fold because Jesus loves them. And to work for him in that sort of way. And I believe he wants to give us miraculous catches, but it's going to require a sold-outness to Jesus. And we are not going to get miraculous catches by living comfortable lives and hoping, hoping that one or, two, well, one or two people might come in. But we're not going to get miraculous catches through half-hearted Christianity and through following Jesus in half-hearted ways. We're going to have to go beyond that. And it's time for us to face the call of Jesus. Do you love me more than all this clutter? More than your home and your income and your job and your reputation? Because let me tell you, there is no reputation in leadership in the church. People used to become leaders in the church because they were regarded as leaders in the community. No longer. You don't count. No one really takes any notice of you in the community anymore. But out of your passion for Christ, 
You'll say, I'm going to give myself to you. I'm going to give myself to the call of your kingdom. It's the only thing that counts. I love you more than anything else. And we have sung song after song after song at this conference about our love for Jesus, which takes us where? It must be time for something. It's probably time to say the Lord's Prayer for all the UK people, but... So we sing, I love you, Lord, I love you, Lord, I love you, Lord, I love you, Lord. Jesus said, please switch it off. (laughs) Jesus said to Peter, (laughs) Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Then look out for my sheep, look out for my lambs. Do you love me? Then it's about my people, my lambs, my sheep. Do you love me? And we've had all sorts of theological sort of frameworks about different words that are used for love here. Please forget all of that. There's a simple question going on here. Do you love me? And if you love me, what sort of life are you going to lead? Is it once going to be sold out for him? Now, let me tell you, I'm a passionate revivalist. I'm unashamed in that. Listen, until revival comes, we'll, we'll go on working and working and working as hard as we can. So it's, this is not an excuse just for praying for revival and hoping that God blesses us. But as I look at the world around me, I think, God, if you don't do something far bigger than all our piddling little efforts, nothing here is going to happen. Not to speak of. We need some mighty moves of God. If we're going to see nations touched with his power and with his life. I believe, I mean, and I pray regularly like this. I pray it in my own prayers and I pray it with other people that I pray with. Lord, would you come and do something that we can't do? Would you come and pour down your life and your power? For the scripture says, I mean, why can we pray, why can we pray with confidence for revival? Well, because there are promises in scripture that point in that direction. The earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The mountain of the Lord will be exalted above every other mountain, and the nations of the earth will stream up to it. These are promises of revival power and revival presence when the presence of God will fill the earth, and that's what God wants wants to do. That's why I'm confident in praying for revival, because I think that's what God wants to do. Okay? Now, I read books on revival regularly uh, to try and fuel my prayer and vision for this. And I happened to be down in Henley, uh, the church that Roger Cole leads, and he said to me, have you read this book, Steve, Prepare for Revival? That's like a... Uh, I've got a habit. So it's on his bookstall. I pay the price, I buy the book, and I start reading it. And one of the things that this book says about revival is at every time of revival, it happened around people who were on fire with God, one way or another. Not around apathetic, half-hearted, hopeful people, but people who were devoured, consumed by something that they had to see. John MacDonald was an incredible revivalist who ministered in the beautiful but often bleak north of Scotland and the Hebrides around 1800 says, but he passed through a still more important change during his residence in Edinburgh. This is a bit of his life story. There's no record of his experience at that time, but of his having made a fresh start in the way of life, there was abundant evidence. There have been instances of persons becoming other men who were not before born again in Christ. But there have also been instances of renewed men becoming other men under a fresh baptism of the Spirit. This was the change which MacDonald underwent in Edinburgh. It was soon apparent in his preaching, always clear and sound in his statements of objective truth. His preaching now became full of life. 
It was now searching and fervent as well as sound and lucid. Knowing the terror of the Lord as he knew it not before. He warned sinners in Zion with such faithfulness and power as excited the wonder and the awe of his hearers. His statements of gospel truth were now the passionate utterances of one who deeply felt its power. The Lord's people could now testify that he spoke from his own heart to theirs. So marked was the change which then passed over his preaching that many were led to judge that he'd never preached the gospel until that change. Let me, let me read you this story. This is one I like. William Haslam was an Anglican vicar who wanted to do good in his Cornish parish of Baldu, but he was not born again. He couldn't understand why he wasn't making any headway. Fortunately, he had a good friend nearby, Robert Aitken, who was also an Anglican vicar and a revivalist. Haslam went to see his friend in 1851, and for some time they discussed his spiritual state, particularly the difference between the natural conscience and the work of the Holy Spirit. Haslam went to bed reading a book that discussed precisely this issue. At breakfast the next morning, they continued their discussion, and he went home with his mind in torment. I endured the greatest agony of mind for the souls I'd misled, though I'd done it ignorantly. When Sunday arrived, he wondered if he should take Aitken's advice to close the church until he was converted. <laughs> he decided to read the morning prayers and then dismiss the congregation. On reading the gospel, he decided to say a few words about the passage. As he spoke, I felt a wonderful light and joy coming into my soul. Whether it was something in my words or my manner or my look, I know not. But all of a sudden, a local preacher who happened to be in the congregation stood up and putting up his arms, shouted in out in the Cornish manner, The parson is converted! The parson is converted! Hallelujah! <laughs> he got converted while he was preaching his own message. It, it appears that Haslam experienced two baptisms at the same time. From that moment on, he was in the middle of revival almost everywhere he went. Some passion had got hold of him. Actually, there are just story after story about people who were so totally seized by the Spirit of God that they were absolutely changed. Peter, do you love me more than all this other clutter? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Then, it's about my sheep. It's about my lambs. It's about my sheep. This isn't just talking about pastoral ministry. Please, it's not. It's talking about God's people who are lost, the sheep that are not of this fold, who still need to come in. They're all God's people, lost and found. I suppose what I... What I want to finish this morning is I, I sense this is what God wants to say. He wants to give us a vision for miraculous catches. Now, in one way or another, I guess we're praying for this. We're hoping to be fruitful. We're praying to be fruitful. But this story tells us that it's about people who are 100% sold out for Jesus, consecrated to his service, passionately in love with him, for whom nothing else matters. And I have a sense that God wants to call us beyond the half-hearted and apathetic service that we currently give him to a new baptism of fire, passion for the lost, where we are not going to let go of God until we see breakthrough in the things of his spirit. And it's transformed people like us who will see transformation in society 
and a breakthrough in God's kingdom and miraculous catches come in because we're so seized by God that nothing else will do. And this morning, I felt God say, there are some people who need to be called back from a failure in leadership. You're a little bit ashamed about your failure, that you've given yourself, but you haven't seen the success. And Jesus wants to say, it's time to come back and have a fresh recommission. And if it's all about Jesus and being consecrated to Jesus and being sold out to Jesus and loving Jesus more than every other bit of clutter in your life, he'll commission us again. And I felt God wanted to speak to younger people here this morning. Say, if there's one career I want to encourage you to have a passion for. It's not the career of business and professional qualifications and status in our society. It's the sold-outness to see people come into the kingdom of God and find the love of Christ and know Christ who will transform their lives and who will give them hope in this life and hope for a future life. And I... I want to, I'm going to invite some young people this morning to come and say, that's what I want to do above everything else and all the other clutter I will lay to one side in order to be sold out for Jesus and to serve to him. And there's only one, there's only one qualification you need for this. Do you love me more than everything else? And that will set you on a course which, in which you could see miraculous catches. And I could see miraculous catches. It's probably to get a baptism of fire. We understand we are so bound to his service that nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. And we're not going to waste our lives as Naomi prophesied to us. We're not going to waste our lives with other stuff because of a sold outness and a passion. And we're going to go beyond. Go beyond because that's where Christ calls us. Amen.